All right, friends, let's go and get started this morning. Let's grab a seat. Let's turn to um, Psalm 107, which is on page 824 of your hymnals. 824, Psalm 107. We'll just do the first 22 verses there. That begins on the left, left side. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those He, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. So he subjected them to bitter labor. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. pray this morning. Father, indeed we remember this morning, Father, um, your steadfast love. We remember the history of your ways with your people, um, the means by which you have established for us um, a history of your steadfast love and your kindness and your faithfulness. And Father, as we come to worship this morning, we do so in light of that story, um, that we have been made partakers of the great story um, of your love. Um, that we um, today um, experience it afresh and anew. And yet there are these, all these years and even indeed eternity stretching behind us where you've shown yourself to be faithful and steadfast. And Father, so that this day we count on that a record. We count on your character um, even as we gather this morning and prepare our hearts for worship. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. Um, let me ask for some help. Jeremy, maybe, and James, will you help me pass out these? Didn't put any extras in the back on the sound booth or whatever. It'd be great. Um, we ordered more books um, because it looked like maybe we were running low last week. I don't know if it looks like all these faces that I see were here last week, but, um, well, maybe, Gabe, you weren't here last week. 
You need a book. Anybody else need a book? Oh, Stearns need a book. Sorry, my bad. Forgot about you guys. Kim? Sorry. Yep. There you go. Um, yeah, sure, Donovan. Yep. Absolutely. Very good. Okay. Um, let's see. So the first thing I need to say, just by means of announcement this morning, is um, that next Sunday um, is when Daylight Savings begins, um, where we go forward in time like a magical train through space. Um, and uh, because of that, uh, we will not have Sunday school next Sunday. Um, uh, because basically it'll be 8.15, um, according to our bodies. And so to spare us that, um, uh, we're just going to not have Sunday school um, this next Sunday. Um, so, um, so next Sunday, worship only um, at 10.30, um, which will feel like 9.30. So make sure you, you know, plan for that. Um, so that'd be great. So next Sunday, no Sunday school. Um, um, also just wanted to give a moment to see if there are any questions um, from last week um, about anything that we talked about last Sunday um, in Sunday school we talked about um, I, I talked about my own sort of personal background um, ministering around issues especially of homosexuality um, I we talked about um, what is a study committee report some ecclesiology in terms of the PCA and the function of these reports um, we talked about some of the details of this report itself in terms of where it came from, who it, who's on it, that kind of thing. Any any questions from last week? Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. So on page 13 in your book, um, if you've got it, um, it talks about um, the committee had eight meetings, um, August 30th, blah, 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 basically about once a month um, they met. Um, so they met eight times, um, and these are men that were coming from all over the country, so I would assume that at least most of those meetings were probably in person and for, you know, a substantial length of time. Um, and then in terms of, um, and of course, I'm sure they were doing work in between. Um, they, in terms of what resources they used, um, I'm sure that obviously the scriptures were a primary source, um, but also um, the Westminster Standards um, of Faith um, that we have. Um, the confessional documents were used. That was one of the charges that was given was help us um, think through how do the confessional standards speak to some of these contemporary questions about sexuality. Um, um, certainly they used, um, you, you can see in the very back, they have a bibio, uh, bibliography, um, and those are all works that they, you know, at least referred to, starting on page 78. There's an annotated bibliography um, that was given. Um, and so, yeah, so it was probably a, a mixture of all those things, I'm sure they also looked at some of the previous um, study committee reports, like the I mentioned last week that the RPCES, the denomination that merged into the PCA in 1983, had done a 
a study committee on this very subject in 1975, I think, or something like that. Um, so they certainly, I'm sure, referred to that study committee as well. So yeah, it was certainly not just the scriptures, but also just generally um, looking at, you know, there's been a lot of material written in the past 30 years or so on this topic, obviously. And so I'm sure all of that was a big part of their, their reflection. Yeah. Anything else? Any other questions that are outstanding? Um, it's also worth saying, um, Melissa, that just as I'm thinking about, that the men that were chosen for the study committee by the moderator, all of, all of them, I'm confident, um, had are a background in thinking through these issues. Um, and that's particularly true for um, several of them, like I mentioned, Jim Weidenmar is an executive, executive director for a ministry called Harvest USA, which is a ministry that's existed um, based out of Philadelphia for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years that has dealt with all kinds of sexual um, ministry, but particularly to homosexuals. Um, that's true for Jim Pachta and Kyle Keating as well, that they have a lot of background in working with around this issue personally. Um, Kevin DeYoung has previously written a book on homosexuality. Um, Tim Keller, of course, has written extensively about um, sexuality and the culture and those kinds of things. So there's probably a lot of just, you know, they're bringing a lot to the table even before the year that they spent together working this report. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, Donovan. Yeah. It is. Yeah, that's a great book. Have you read it? Good. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, the, it's a book in the narthex called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy that I would recommend as a, uh, you know, pretty meaty, significant work on these topics. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Did you have a hand up, Michael? I imagine not. Okay. Very good. All right, I want to talk for a minute before we get into the preamble of the report. Um, just briefly about why or whether, the, oh, I'll say it this way, this is how I wrote it on the page, the importance of whether and how we talk about sexual sin and sexual holiness. So just for a minute, talk about why we're, why we're doing this class and why I think it's important. And um, Ephesians 5, I want to read that as a sort of introduction to talk about these things just briefly. Um, so Paul in Ephesians 5, the very beginning, he writes this. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Um, just a few comments about that. Um, Paul here says, um, sexual immorality, impure covetousness must not even be named among you. And so just to speak briefly to that, you know, why are we having a class then on, you know, sexuality and homosexuality and um, sexual sin and temptation? When we should not supposed to name these things. Um, to be clear, Paul here is not saying that we, we're not supposed to talk about them at all. Um, you, you can't read the Bible and hold that position, right? The Bible um, actually has a great deal to say about sex. Um, um, the, you know, the Old Testament, um, you think about Genesis and all the um, very frank um, description of sexual sin that occurs in Genesis, um, um, Hagar and Abraham and um, Judah and Tamar and, and all these different stories that exist um, in um, Genesis in that way. Um, um, and all throughout the Old Testament, that's true. Um, you also think about the Levitical code, um, the, the law that is given that is very specific in terms of sexual sin and doesn't, you know, it, it is not afraid to name things very explicitly in terms of what's prohibited by God's law um, sexually. Um, and then, of course, um, you can think about the New Testament as well. I mean, think about Paul's own ministry in, in the church of Corinth, right? The, the letter of Corinthians talks about, um, you know, men sleeping with um, their stepmother, um, talks about, um, you know, pro having sex with prostitutes in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, you know, they're all, Paul obviously is not afraid to talk about sexual things. So what he's saying, I think, is you don't name things like this in a, in a joking way, in a, in a coarse way, in a way that is inappropriate for the subject matter, right? And I think as you walk through um, that text that I just read, I think it's really fascinating the way that it talks about um, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance um, in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then it becomes to talk, begins to talk about um, don't even be partners with these things because you were in darkness, but now you're in light. And it talks about the idea of things coming into the light and that that is where um, change happens. That's where purity happens is in the light. And I think it's really important to say that that is one of the reasons why it's good for us to do a class like this um, because we need to bring these things into the light. We need to talk about um, sexual sin. We need to talk about sexual temptation. Um, not only because, you know, certainly we could, you know, say there's a great deal of confusion about these topics in the culture, and we want to be centered on what the scriptures teach ourselves, but also um, talking sexually about sexual issues in a context like this um, in Sunday school gives us, hopefully, you'll be reading these things not only as sort of a, um, this, this study committee report as a sort of apologetic tool to think about the culture, but you'll be examining your own life and thinking about your own sexual temptations and sins and struggles and those kinds of things. And I want, I want to be very clear that that's one of my intentions and purposes in doing this class is that we can move more into the light together. And I want to say to you um, that I, I mentioned last week that we're all sexual sinners and we approach this topic with that reality. Um, all of us have um, our own story of sexual sin, of temptation, 
um, ways that perhaps we've been sinned against sexually, ways that we've sinned against others sexually. Um, and that's important to say. And, and a lot of times it's very easy for those things to remain hidden, to remain in the darkness, um, so to speak. And I, th- I think the, the movement of the gospel, the movement of sexual holiness is to bring those things into the light. Not in inappropriate ways, right? And we're not in, in ways that are just sort of coarse or um, overly, you know, not serious, not um, intentional. But to bring those things in light in appropriate ways is how healing happens, is how repentance happens, is how change happens. And this is true for all sin, but I think in some ways this may be particularly true for sexual sin. Um, sexual sin, um, I don't, I think there are a lot of reasons we could talk about why this is, but it seems to me certainly um, in my own um, pastoral ministry and experience, sexual sin gains much of its power from its hiddenness, from its secrecy, um, from um, the, the, the way that it feels like you have to cover it up and hide it and fix it yourself. Um, and that, that just doesn't work, friends. It doesn't work. Um, uh, it doesn't work for any of us um, to become sexually holy in that way. Um, we need to think about what does it mean to bring these things into the light with others in appropriate ways. Um, and that's one of the reasons I want to do this class is to create, hopefully, more comfort with that concept, with that idea. And I just want you to know that um, as a pastor, um, walking with people through sexual sin and temptation and brokenness is like a huge part of what I do. Um, So I just want you to know that I'm here for those conversations. Um, You know, I've walked with people through um, affairs, uh, both, you know, real affairs, like literal affairs, um, sexual affairs, um, and emotional, you know, affairs, inappropriate relationships. I've walked with people through sexual abuse. I've walked with people through um, pornography. I've walked with people through um, sexual, um, you know, temptation um, just in, in more uh, straightforward ways. I've walked with people with, through sexual problems in their marriages. Um, all it, like, we just want you to know that those things aren't frightening to me to talk to you about, and in fact that I want to be a place where you can talk about those things. And if you're not talking to me about to me about those things or places where you're struggling sexually, I hope that there's someone, um, that there's some place where you are working through um, your own history of sexual sin, your own um, story of even present temptation and sin in your life now, um, that you're walking with someone through considering what it means for you to be holy sexually, because that's what God wants for you. And so I want to, I want to, and I want to say that, that as a pastor, I have, I've seen people grow in sexual holiness. Like it really is possible to be healed by Christ um, and to put off sin and to live a different kind of way. And you need to know that. Sometimes sexual sin can feel so overwhelming and it can be something that you feel trapped in. And I just want to say in front of you all, as your pastor, that there is hope in the gospel Um, change happens. Um, The Lord does minister to us, even in those places that feel most shameful or most broken. Um, But very, very often that only happens as we move toward the light with those things, um, as we move out of the darkness and into the light. So I just want to say that's part of my rationale, even for doing this class, is is not just so we can talk about all the problems out there in the world somewhere, right? Um, but so that we can actually think about our own lives um, through the lens of this study committee report and the the study of the scriptures that it does. 
Any comments or questions about that before we jump into the material today? Okay, very good. We'll ponder those things. So we're just going to look today at the preamble to the report, um, which is on your handout um, verbatim. Um, but it's also, if you prefer to look at it in the book and take notes there, um, it begins on page 15 and continues to page 19. Um, so this is the just explanation, the introduction, so to speak, um, to the report um, where they discuss their task, um, how they've structured the report, and some of their intentions. Um, so I'm just going to read through it um, verbatim and make some comments as we go. Um, so the committee has been tasked, we read in the preamble, by the 2019 General Assembly, that's the assembly that met here in Dallas in that year, to, quote, study the topic of human sexuality with particular attention to the issues of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism, and prepare a report. Our task was not to address the whole of human sexuality, um, but limited to specific concerns in our denomination. So um, there we see, um, and it's important to know this about the, I think they did a pretty good job actually of providing a lens through which to talk about sexuality in general um, as Christians. Um, but it is certainly true that the report is focused on um, questions around homosexuality, same-sex attraction, trans and transgenderism. Um, and, and of course, a big part of that is because those are, the, I think, the places in our culture today um, where we see the most confusion, the most um, division, uh, not just, I'm not talking about the PCA here necessarily, but just generally in our culture. Um, there's so much confusion, and, and um, I mean, it's remarkable to think about, um, you know, I'm 41, how much it's shifted even in my lifetime, right, in terms of the way that we talk about these things culturally, um, the way that homosexual um, practice is accepted um, as, you know, something that is normal and good and right and should be celebrated. Um, you know, and certainly when I was a child, that wasn't at all the case. Um, and it's, it's, I'm just talking about the broader culture here. Um, and it is really fascinating to think about that. And of course, we could also talk about the way in which gender um, has become such a, a confusing um, thing in our culture, where gender becomes essentially something that you, you know, you're, you, you aren't born with, but that you isn't given to you by God or anyone else, but it's something that you, in some sense, have to discover for yourself. And um, just, just thinking about the way in which that impacts, particularly our young people, um, is a deep concern that I have. Um, and all the, the kind of exploration of those questions that is encouraged even by our culture today um, of our young people, um, which is um, deeply sad, I think, um, even abusive in different ways, um, I would say. Um, I, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, such a burden um, to put on a young person to say, Okay, you're you know 15 years old. Now you need to decide if you're a man or a woman. Um, it's, I mean, it's absurd. It's a it's an absurd thing, um, and um, and it's heartbreaking. But th that's very much the world that we live in these days. Um, and um, and so so that's that's the context for um, the study committee report. 
Um, so the Assembly's adopted overture lists a number of issues that it wants the report to address, including one, the nature of sexual sin, temptation and mortification. Mortification, just a, um, a, a big theological word that means putting sin to death, right? Um, putting sin to death, mortifying it. Um, the propriety or not of a Christian referring to himself or herself as a gay Christian. Um, and so this is, um, even within our denomination, a place where um, there is, I, honestly, I don't even know how much debate there is in our denomination over this, but it certainly is something that's out there in the culture. And there's discussion about, you know, what does it mean to use terminology um, that is taken from the broader culture to refer to your sexual um, attractions, your sexual desires, and then to apply that to yourself in a public way. Um, that's, a, that's a big topic today um, and, and is something that the report addresses. The propriety or not of speaking of a homosexual orientation. And I think that is a fascinating question. Um, the whole concept of a sexual orientation, much less a homosexual orientation, it only is a, about 100 years old as an idea that exists in the world. Um, um, and that's something we'll talk about as we go through the report, but that the whole idea of being, having a sexual orientation um, is a recent innovation of modern human thought, which I think is a really fascinating to think about. Um, I personally question whether we shouldn't just reject that category altogether um, as Christians. I, I think there are a lot of ways in which it's not helpful, um, um, particularly the way in which well, there are many ways I think it's unhelpful, but, um, but you know, orientation, the using that language of, you know, homosexual or heterosexual orientation or some other orientation um, assumes that you're this sort of binary thing, right? That you, you're either, um, you know, you're either quote unquote gay or you're straight, you know, which are you? Um, and the reality is that that's not how sexual desire works. That's not, you know, there's a spectrum even within um, those things of attraction and, and the kinds of people that you're attracted to, that kind of thing. It's not an on-off switch. Um, that's not how orientation, if we're gonna use that kind of language, works. And so I think there are, there are all sorts of limitations. Um, um, but I think the, the primary problem of using the language of orientation is that it, it acts as though our sexual desires are some kind of fundamentally defining um, thing about us, and I think that's I think that's a concern for me, um, yeah, in a number of ways. Um, for recent practices of incorporating Christians into Christian community who have been attracted to the same sex, um, here um, that's primarily referring. Um, there was a book written um, named called Spiritual Friendship by a man named Wes Hill, um, <coughs> which much of the book is really wonderful. Um, I really appreciate it. But towards the end of the book, Wes Hill is a, um, would describe himself as a gay man who is a Christian um, and is an ordained priest in, I think, the ACNA now. Um, and his book um, talks about, at the very end of that book, which again, the book is largely, I think, really helpful, some great thoughts about friendship and the importance of friendship and those kinds of things. He begins to talk about the propriety of sort of vowed celibate, so non-sexual relationships um, in terms of, you know, um, sexual intimacy. But, but what is there a place essentially he's asking for 
um, two men who are um, celibate, for example, to have some kind of vowed friendship to one another um, that is not sexual, um, but it, 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 you know, it, it joins people together in some sort of formal relationship. Um, you can imagine that there are, from my perspective at least, all sorts of problems and concerns about that kind of thing. I mean, I, under, I understand to some extent the desire for that kind of thing. Um, I get that, but there are issues with that as well. So that's something that um, the report is going to address is the propriety of relationships like that. Um, how do we think about you know, non-marital uh, relationships to one another? Um, all while giving special attention to parts of the scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, for example, in the standards, for example, Westminster Larger Catechism 138 and 139, which those are the expositions of the seventh commandment, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, that are relevant to these topics. Um, so they say, our list of assigned topics is long, and we have sought to address them most directly in this preamble, and the immediately following 12 statements that we pray are of a length to be most helpful for ease of distribution and common use in the church. So if you turn to... Um, pages right after the preamble I'm starting on page 20 it says 12 statements um, and that goes to page 30 so they're 10 pages um, so the statements aren't like you know just a sentence or two they're more robust than that but they are concise and so what they're saying is that we have striven to really summarize our primary um, takeaways our primary conclusions um, our primary things that we want to communicate about these topics in these 12 statements because you know they know that not everybody's going to read a 62 page study committee report so maybe if they boil it down and really try to be concise then that'll have more um, you know do more legwork in the church so to speak so so those 12 statements marriage image of god original sin desire oh gosh con concupiscence thank you james impeccability um identity, uh, language, friendship, and that relates to the thing I was talking about just a moment ago, repentance and hope. Um, so so they've, they've tried to basically summarize what they're saying in those 12 um, statements. Um, this preamble and the 12, so the 12, but, 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 the preamble and 12 statements are a summary of our discussions and convictions and provide a theological and pastoral framework for all the other parts of this report. Our committee engaged in its most lengthy and precise discussions on these two documents. So they, which means basically you had eight men in the room working on those 12 statements over a matter of, you know, number of months, literally arguing about each word. I mean, I don't mean arguing in some contentious way, but like examining each word, right? So each word in those 12 statements is carefully debated and chosen um, to try to be precise about what they're trying to say. Um, as we carefully weigh the most critical issues to provide biblical and confessional arguments that we hope will bring clarity and unity on these sensitive subjects for our churches, families, and friends. So we're going to spend probably, um, we're going to try to do about three of those statements a week over the next month or so is going to be the plan. So we're going to spend a lot of time just walking through those 12 statements because, um, because they're really rich, I think, and helpful and give us a framework to really think deeply about um, these things. Our committee also gathered explanatory essays from our members that discuss issues assigned to us 
um, by the assembly. We have included these essays in subsequent sections of this report because without endorsing how every thought is expressed, we all believe they will be helpful in ex explaining key understandings behind our 12 statements. So those are, there are three essays that follow the 12 statements on page 31 talks about confessional foundations regarding the nature of temptation, sin, and repentance. So that's a kind of theological approach to those questions of temptation, sin, and repentance. And then um, there is an essay called Biblical Perspectives for Pastoral Care, Discipleship, Identity, and Terminology. And then there's a final one that is titled Apologetic Approaches for Speaking to the World. So what they did here, just so you know, is that they split up these um, and I think somewhere it's listed um, who was responsible for which essays. But essentially between the, I think, seven or eight men on the committee, they said, you, you two or you three are going to write this essay, et cetera, et cetera, those, those three essays. Um, one, theological foundations, one focused on pastoral care, um, and one focused on the apologetic task. Um, and so what they're saying is that we didn't necessarily go through these three essays with the same kind of rigor as a committee and agree on every single word, but we're in all endorsing them as being helpful. Does that make sense? We're not saying, all the committee members aren't saying we necessarily agree with every word or every sentence in these three subsequent essays, but we think that they're helpful. Finally, we compiled a selected annotated bibliography that lists materials we believe will be helpful to the various constituencies of our church who wish to become more informed about this issue. In this bibliography, we provided materials for a variety of audiences, pastors, scholars, parents, children, etc. Our goal is not to present an exhaustive list of all available materials, that would be impossible, given how much has been written on these topics. That would unbalance the elements and efficacy of this report, but to aid the church by presenting some of the most useful materials for different constituencies and different purposes. We cannot affirm our agreement with every word or thought and such a wide variety of materials, indeed, sometimes we must make informed readers aware of resources they should be prepared to counter or receive with caution. So they're letting you know about some things that are out there that they would viscerally disagree with, um, just because there are important works on the topic that you would be, you know, want to be aware of if you're going to be informed about the discussion around these issues. Our goal is for our annotations to guide our readers with the biblical discernment needed to hold what is good and right and, and rightly sift what is unbiblical or less certain. So there's a really helpful bibliography if this is a, a topic that you want to continue to think about um, starting on page 78 and continuing to page 89. So it's pretty extensive. Um, so it just gives a lot of different resources. Um, and the most helpful part is that it, they the committee gives comments about each one of these resources. So it gives you a uh, perspective on where they're coming, where this resource is being written from, um, where where they think it's helpful or not helpful, that kind of thing. So it's a great resource to have that bibliography of different works um, listed. So those things are there for you. Okay. Um, amidst all these statements and essays, we discern or before. So before I get into this, which is more the meat of the preamble. Any questions about anything I've listed in terms of read so far in the preamble about the structure of the report or how they're communicating about it? All right, I think this section of the preamble is really important. 
Amidst all these statements and essays, they say, we discern two overarching concerns, concerns which may be expressed as two important tasks for the church in our time and two competing sets of fears. The two tasks could be called the, quote, pastoral task and the, quote, apologetic task. On the one hand, Overture 42, which is the overture that created this committee, that the assembly approved, asked that the report help pastors and sessions shepherd congregants who are dealing with same-sex attraction. On the other hand, it asks for also, quote, suggested ways to articulate and defend a biblical understanding of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism in the context of a culture that denies that understanding. So you have the pastoral task that this you know, this committee was asked to help pastors in session um, shepherd congregants that deal with sexual sin and temptation. And also the committee was asked to provide a kind of a defense of what the Bible teaches regarding um, different sexual issues. There's no reason why these two tasks need to be pitted against each other, although they often seem to be. One reason they seem at loggerheads is that they are attached to each undertaking as a set of fears. So really think about this, um, these two fears, and I think even what, which one you might come into this discussion more concerned about, because I think all of us probably are concerned about one more than the other, potentially. One set of fears is that we will be harsh and unfeeling toward people who have been wounded and deeply hurt, and often by the church. A harsh-sounding stance toward them at this moment may only make it easier to discredit the church in people's minds. As a consequence, many are afraid that the church will speak in ways that only support the powerful cultural narrative that Orthodox Christian belief is toxic for hurting and struggling people. So they're saying this is one of the fears that readers of our report might have, that that the church will try to speak to these things, but they'll do so in a way that will be harsh or unfeeling or uncaring or lack compassion um, towards um, those who are sexual sinners. And that's a, I want to say up front, that's a reasonable fear, right? Um, There's no doubt that at times um, in the church's history broadly and uh, recently, um, even in the last um, 50 years or so, where the church has often Um, been harsh and unfeeling in the way that has spoken about sexual sin. Um, You think about a dramatic example, right, is the that Westboro Baptist, um, I don't even know if they're, I would call them a church, they're more of a cult, right, that goes around and holds up signs, um, you know, God hates slur, homosexual slur, um, at funerals, you know, um, of people who have died from AIDS or even People don't have any, as far as I can tell, connection to homosexuality. They just want to get their message out, you know, like a service, the funerals of servicemen or that kind of thing. Um, so you can think about that's a really dramatic example, right, of this group that, that goes around and just has this really public condemnatory um, attitude as though all of God's judgment in the world is all because of one particular sin and one particular um, group of people. Um, but then there are all sorts of lesser, you know, less extreme, but also um, significant examples. And some of you may have experienced this in the church, um, where you have felt like, I, you know, I was talking earlier about bringing your sin to the light and all those things. You may have had an experience where you felt like, well, I brought my sin to the light and I was destroyed, right? Um, you know, a parent, a Christian parent um, um, who 
shamed me, who, um, um, you know, who treated me with condemnation because I confessed my sin to them or I was, I was found out in my sin. Um, a pastor, um, a Sunday school teacher, you know, a Christian person in the church. Um, you know, many of us have that kind of story, unfortunately, that the church at times has not responded um, with compassion and concern um, toward sexual sinners. And of course, if you think about the ministry of Jesus, how alien that is to the way that Jesus dealt with sexual sin, um, I think is really fascinating. Jesus was not afraid to talk about sexual sin, um, but you think about the woman um, caught in adultery, you think about um, the Samaritan woman at the well, you think about the woman who was a great sinner who washes his feet, um, you think about all different kinds of sexual sin that Jesus enters into with concern and compassion while also speaking the truth, right? He says to the woman caught in adultery, um, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more, he says. Um, Jesus does both those things at once. Um, so I wanna say right up, this is a legitimate fear that we could talk about homosexuality and these kinds of issues or gender issues in ways that would be harsh and unfeeling. Another set of fears, however, and some of us may have that fear. Um, another set of fears, however, is that we will compromise at the very place where the world is attacking the church and our culture. We see many professing Christians and whole denominations surrendering to the sexual revolution, which is absolutely true. Uh, we could talk about lots of examples of that. Uh, we do not want to be one of them, nor even now in subtle ways to sow the seeds for some future capitulation. Um, so, you know, they're saying we, we can look out in the culture and see many who claim to be Christians, um, who profess to be Christians, who have reversed even the history of the historical teaching of their own church, right, um, has totally changed um, in the last few decades, right? It used to be that a denomination might have taught one thing about marriage and sexual sin, and now they've, it's like that never existed. Now, you know, the, the books have been changed to say, no, we don't believe that anymore. Now we believe that, you know, homosexual marriage is fine, um, or it's fine to, you know, you don't need to be chaste in order to be a pastor or an elder in the church, that kind of thing. Um, so there, there's no question that this is true, not just denominationally, but also in terms of Christians um, themselves. And uh, there are, yeah, sad stories even that I know about, you know, um, PCA pastors who have, um, you know, I remember one pastor in seminary who was, I, when I was a student, he was coming, speaking to students. He was going to plant a church in San Francisco. And um, he was like being held up. He was like, a, he was like successful, like RUF guy who was like, all the people wanted to give him money, right, to go and plant this church in San Francisco. And now his church is, they left PCA a long time ago, and he is like full-on affirming of, you know, homosexual relationships and marriage. Um, they're in a different denomination now. It's a really heartbreaking story because of, you know, well, many reasons, but not least of which just kind of where he came from and the, um, that, he, well, that he knows better, to put it bluntly, um, that he knows better. Um, and it's, it's really sad. It's really heartbreaking um, to see that. And they also say that we don't, you know, there are these dramatic stories of capitulation um, to the cultural narrative in the church, but we don't even want to, like, go down that road a little bit, right? We, we know that often compromise, um, theologically, biblically, happens slowly over time. You don't even realize you're doing it until it's happened. So they're saying we don't even, 
want to sow the seeds for some future capitulation of our denomination down the road. Um, as the natural family, and this is an important statement, is a fundamental unit of human society and is the normal means of care and nurture for human persons, I think they mean, all sins which threaten, undermine, or marginalize it are both spiritually dangerous and detrimental to human flourishing. And I think that's exactly right. Um, we should not be ashamed as Christians to talk about um, the family, the importance of the family, the centrality of the family. I know that's not necessarily popular these days, or you know, people sometimes are nervous about that because we think about um, you know, there are some who are not in families or, you know, for whatever reason or aren't called to marriage or whatever it is. That's okay. The church can say there's dignity in not being called to marriage, but still we can also say that the family, which is, you know, um, which marriage is the foundation of, is, as they put it here, a fundamental unit of human society and the normal means of care and nurture for human persons. And so therefore, our, all false teaching, all sins, um, which undermine the family are especially dangerous and detrimental to human flourishing. And you know, if you just wanna look at the, just from a sociological perspective, right, the, the way in which you know, families have changed in our culture in the last 100 years or 80 years or whatever it might be, time frame you can explain a lot of the just general um, issues in our culture, I think. Um, the family is, even unbelieving families, right, are a means of common grace um, for a culture and for a world um, where there is a man and a woman who are faithful in their marriage and they're raising their children and all those things. Um, so that's, that's a really important thing for us to think about and talk about. So, so this is a very like, understandable fear too that we would compromise on these issues um, as a church, our church maybe, or the PCA generally, um, that we would not hold fast to what the scriptures teach because it is increasingly difficult to do that in our culture. It's less and less popular. Um, you're even, you know, as it says up there that in the paragraph previous, there's even this perception that to be an Orthodox Christian and believe what Orthodox Christians believe is actually toxic to people, it's dangerous, right? It's abusive um, for Christians to say that uh, marriage must and can only be between a man and a woman, um, or that you know your gender is something that God gives you, not something that you determine. Like it, the, the idea now is that those those beliefs are not just wrong in the broader culture, but they're actually toxic. They're actually dangerous. They're actually abusive to people. Um, so. So these are two reasonable fears. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with the argument there? Okay. All right, so they say part of the problem with regarding to addressing these issues is that many of us are far more gripped with one set of the fears than the other. I think that's true. I think probably all of us come into this discussion more concerned about the church not being compassionate enough or the church compromising, right? Um, and I think we should even just think about that for ourselves. Which are we more afraid of? Um, which are we more concerned about? Um, but both, because both of these tasks, the pastoral task and the apologetic are required, they said we should give each of them their strong attention. That's their intention is to do with both. And then they have this great, I think, meta or illustration, I guess, of what they're trying to do. 
Sinclair Ferguson, who's a uh, Reformed theologian, in his book, The Whole Christ, uh, reminds us that the two main ways that the gospel is compromised are through legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. So either you know, legalism, earning God's favor and love through obedience to the law, or antinomianism, which says that obedience to the law is irrelevant, um, that you don't need to obey the law. Um, he then says that it is common to fall into the mistake, this is important, of prescribing a dose of antinomianism to heal legalism, right? So if you're from a legalist back, legalism background, what you need to hear is that, no, law doesn't matter, don't worry about it, you know, they're there, you know. Um, or vice versa, rather than the gospel, and vice versa. So, you know, if you grow up antinomianism, what you need to hear is legalism. You need to hear that God loves you based on how you keep the law. That's, that's the basis of your assurance of your salvation and all these kinds of things. Um, rather than the gospel anecdote of our grace union with Christ. Um, so, so he's saying, you know, you don't, you don't heal one error by overdoing on the other side, basically. He then goes on to argue that the church must present to the world the whole Christ clothed in his gospel. Jesus is both the holy one and the merciful one. He cleanses the temple, yet he eats with sinners. He gives Martha teaching on truth, yet he gives Mary only tears, quoting from the same chapter, John 11, after Lazarus has died, even though they both had said the same thing to him about their grief, which is a really fascinating thing. If we had more time, we could look at that, but I encourage you to go back and look at John 11 and the verses they cite there and how Jesus deals with the two sisters differently, even though they say the same thing to him and they have the same concern right, the death of their brother and Jesus' absence when he could have been there sooner to heal him before he died. He gives each of them, Mary and Martha, what they most need at the moment. On the cross, Jesus fulfills both the unyielding demands of the law, yet also the most wonderful purposes of God's love. And so we must present the, quote, whole Christ when we both pastor individuals and speak to the world about sexuality and gender today. Jesus is full of grace and truth. In pastoral care, we must not apply the truth so harshly as to be callously alienating or so indirectly that the truth is never clearly grasped. Um, the very form of the following 12 statements seeks to capture this, quote, grace and truth wholeness as we address the issues. Each statement is dual. So they go, they talk about marriage being one thing and then marriage, you know, being not being this thing. And associating of one truth with a concomitant truth or teaching. The aim is not to achieve some kind of abstract intellectual balance or third way. I think we should always be a little suspicious of someone who says they've discovered a third way. I'm just making that comment generally. Um, but rather to show the path of theologically rich pastoring. The paired truths help the pastor avoid the opposite errors of either speaking the truth without love or trying to love someone without speaking the truth. The grace and truth path to which we point the church in this report is not an easy one. Speaking the truth, yet doing it in love, is nearly always harder than separating these needed aspects of the whole gospel into two alternatives. Speaking with grace, and this is important, um, speaking with grace and truth, in the process of our work together this year, we on the Ad Interim Committee have been delighted to find a greater spirit and degree of oneness, that is unity, amongst ourselves than we would have expected. Our prayer is that our entire church may increasingly find that same unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's important to say. What they're saying there is that we came into this room 
at least a little bit suspicious of one another, right? What's Tim Keller going to think about this? What's Kevin DeYoung going to think about this? What's Dr. Brian Chappell going to think about this? What's, um, I just habitually call him Dr. Chappell. Um, um, what, what is, you know, and they say basically as we went into the room together and sat together and studied these things and tried to really consider the wholeness of what the scripture teaches, um, we found that we had unity and that we actually signed off completely on these 12 statements together um, equally. Um, that there's no minority report, right? There was a unified committee report given to the assembly. And I think that was, that's a fascinating thing. And I, I'm, you know, I don't, you know, maybe that exists some, some ways in our church. I don't know if that's, I don't think that's true, but maybe some, you know, we're nervous about one fear or the other. Um, but I think if we, as we go through this, we're going to find that there's actually unity, that there's actually an ability to agree about these things, to be both gracious and truthful at the same time around issues of sexuality. Any thoughts or questions before we wrap up? I know I've given you a lot. And the kids are coming. So think about your questions. You can write them down and we'll take them at the beginning of Sunday school two weeks from now, not next Sunday. Next Sunday, no Sunday school. Let's stand and pray. Father, you're gracious, you're kind, um, you love us, um, even in our sin and our confusion and our failures. Um, you love us in the places where we've been harsh with others about their sexual sin. Um, you love us in the place where we ourselves are sexual sinners and need forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that your grace um, would be manifest um, through this discussion in the weeks have come, um, that we would we would cling to the truth of your scripture, but we would do so and speak the truth with love, Father, and with compassion. I pray you would give us unity even in our church around these matters. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.